I think about my body of work as a museum of the future. And each portrait represents royalty of the time or a celebrity of the time. And the biggest celebrity in robotics right now is Boston Spot Dynamics, of course. So I wanted to paint a portrait for the future of the robot. And perhaps conceptual as an artist, I think of it that the future AI, intelligent machines, they can look at these portraits and think about Spot, oh, these are my cultural ancestors. Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. I'm Donna Laughlin, and each week I'll take you on a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. On this podcast, you'll hear from innovators from an array of industries and philosophies who imagine and are still imagining the future. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. We might all be familiar with Leonardo da Vinci and his vast bodies of work blending both the future and art. Our guest this week is Agnieszka Pilat a contemporary painter who could have easily been an understudy to the famous artist, or centuries later turned up at the Andy Warhol factory. Originally from Poland, her diverse body of work celebrates tech and innovation. Whether her subjects are aging machinery or emerging technology, her paintings lovingly convey the human side of machines. Collectors include billionaires and tech moguls like Google's Eric Schmidt, the Israeli investor Yuri Melner, and Sotheby's. Several of her paintings also appeared in the most recent Matrix film. Agnieszka has been a resident artist at the World Trade Center, Autodesk, Waymo, Wrightspeed, Boston Dynamics, and now her dream company, SpaceX. In this episode, we talk to Agnieszka about her love of machines, old and new, her perspectives on power and privilege, and the new frontiers of Web3 and space exploration. Agnieszka developed her romantic relationship with machines while growing up in post-industrialist Poland. We start the show talking about these formative years, the earliest influences on her life, and how she became an artist. I'm from Poland. I'm from a city called Łódź. Americans sometimes pronounce it Lodz. It's a city in the center of Poland, in the very, very center. So I grew up, it was still as a child, deep, deep communism. And then 84 through 89, a lot of unrest. And I was a young teenager. And then the next almost 10 years, I was still there after the system changed. And it's been extremely important in the way I look at the world as an immigrant. I just love America. It's number one most important thing for me. And that feeds into my love for American technology, American innovation. So that's a big part of my life, for sure, how I look at the world. And what did your parents do in that period when you were growing up? My mom was a gym teacher, and my father was a pastry chef. In 1989, Poland did something very interesting. The way they allowed people to buy businesses they worked for before, my father and my mom, they decided they're going to buy out the bakery business that he worked for that was on for the government. So she quit her job. And she started helping him. Neither of them had even driver's licenses. They've never had any experience with business. 
And in the 10 years they worked so hard, I don't think they've taken a day off during 10 years. And they built a very lovely business of a bakery and a few shops around town. I've been to Poland and the people and the food, I think, synergistically reflect each other. I personally remember the first time I went to Poland, your sensory overload with food and the smells, but just walking the streets and the food vendors, the street vendors. But the other thing that I noticed, at least in Warsaw, was the public art, the statues and art throughout the city was really prominent. Was it like that when you were growing up? This is a really interesting point. I actually never talked about this. Yes, we grew up with a lot of art around us. And of course, again, rewind before 89. Lots of it was Soviet, was very specific kind of art and public art, glory of the working man, glory of the army. So it was very specific technically wonderful. I really admire Soviet and Russian artists. They're very good artists, but of course they're propaganda artists. And then Warsaw is very interesting in the context you're mentioning, because during World War II, Warsaw was leveled. There was nothing left. So like now we're seeing these images coming from Ukraine, the towns that are totally erased, that whole Warsaw. And after World War II, Poland made an extraordinary effort to rebuild brick by brick. So it's very close to the original, but it's all kind of a Disneyland, actually. All the art you see, they're all reproductions, but they're very close reproductions to the real. In order to understand history and art, you have to look at the past and move to the future. There is a lot of history in the country, and you were describing kind of the propaganda art. And so I went from Poland to Kaliningrad. I landed in a wheat field. And there's a little airport and the hammer and sickle was swinging by one screw on the airport. And the mural around the airport was about agriculture. And it showed happy, I'm not so happy, but <laughs> they look happy in the mural of working together in the Soviet way of harvesting wheat. That was the only airport in my life that I've ever landed in a wheat field. So I thought, wow, where am I? And so that was interesting. But as a child, when you saw that type of art, did you connect to it as art or was it just part of your everyday landscape? Did you question or think about that as being art or what was your first familiarity with art versus propaganda? No, we were clueless, not just children, but a little older generation to some extent, but especially kids. I mean, the way we were taught history we were taught that when Germany invaded, that the Russians came to help us and protect us. But in truthfulness, Russians attacked us from the east when Germans attacked us from the west. I mean, I was always a very good student. I loved history, but I was in my maybe late teens when I found out that no, Russians actually had a secret pact with the Germans when they attacked us. So I looked around and art was what it was. So it was like you're saying, yeah, a lot of actually propaganda about farming, about collective farms. I didn't understand that there was political message in it. We were just absorbing it. Interesting. So at what age did you discover art? So yes, as a teenager, as an older teenager, I remember the first kind of major thing I did was when I was revolting kind of against my dad and I painted this huge mural in my room. And then my parents came in and they were a little surprised, like, what happened? So that was my first encounter with art. What was the mural? It was actually a cow. It was like a comic book sort of image because I loved comic books. And early on in my career, actually, I doubled with comics. So it was a mural kind of comic book from the fields 
I guess, countryside. That's all I knew. It wasn't a superhero comic book? No, superheroes are very uniquely American. At least I did not grow up with superheroes. I didn't understand them. For me now, it's very interesting because I can see how superheroes shape American culture and pop culture. But no, for us, the heroes were the working men and women with the blue-collar working class. So you're a teenager. You're discovering art for the first time. How did you discover art? Was it through a classroom, through the library, looking at books? Or what struck your chord about art? I think I actually, in a very professional, full-on way, I came to art pretty late. To think about art as my career, it took me a long time to get there. I would say that we all, as kids, especially girls, I think, all girls draw and paint and are kind of artistic. I don't think I was very, very different in that sense. I don't think I was particularly talented or more curious about art than other people. The story really truly is that I came to America. I had that background in art. I had actually a startup with my then boyfriend in Poland. When CD-ROMs came in, we released a CD-ROM with learning English and learning other languages. So it was my kind of first entry to professional way. But honestly, it was only when I came to America and I wanted to contribute to it in some little way. And for me, it was to tell the story does my love for this country from the perspective of someone who grew up in Eastern Europe behind the Iron Curtain? I thought that art was the language to do it. For those who haven't been to Eastern Europe or experienced pre and post, it can be very gray, right? When I went for the first time, I thought everything is gray. It color, pop a color and things that you see here in the United States and Western Europe, it wasn't as common, right? Oh, yes. The colors, it's very interesting. So I was born in Łódź, which is a very industrial city. So a lot of textile industry, actually in America, in New York specifically, a lot of Jews who were in textile industry, they came from my city to escape anti-Semitism to New York. Fast forward, late 80s, 90s, that industry is still operating, first under communism, then privatized factories. But because the labor became very expensive in Poland compared to Russia, all these jobs went to the East. So now I'm growing up a young person in very gray watch. But there were things starting to come from the West. First one was BP gas stations with the blue and yellow. I was blown away. And McDonald's. McDonald's, when it came to Poland, to see that red and that yellow, you go inside and the furniture is beautiful and clean. This was kind of my first encounter with color. As a child, everything was very gray. The only colors I saw was when I went on vacation to Hungary. In Hungary, for some reason, the system was a little looser, maybe, especially for children. They had some stuff that was really colorful. I remember chewing gum in this very bright blue color, and we were amazed. How was it? So I think the cow in my room, that was like a leftover of seeing the little pieces, and then we started getting maybe markers and paint that had colors in it too. And it was kind of my expression of that. But it's very true. I grew up in a very, very gray place. And the idea of brand, when you talked about McDonald's logo in the gas station, you didn't have brands. It wasn't the consumer-driven economy like in the United States, North America, or Western Europe, right? And so that alone is this kind of brand component. But I want to jump to your artwork. It's poetic. It's interesting. Your mother was in fitness and your father was a baker. And they have two different worlds come together. And you're doing the same, bringing this art and the technology 
and the beauty and maybe in some place the ugly, the good, bad, and the ugly together. And so this juxtaposition of looking at things differently, it seems like your lens of the world and how you have to go from all gray to all of a sudden just beautiful colors and projectory and all these things. That's a lot going on there, right? So how do you translate that and then put it into this career of art that started in America? How did that come to be? So I would divide my work in three separate stages to this point. First, I was trained as a portrait painter, human portraiture, classically trained. The second stage is when I paint ruins of technology or derelict technology. And this is what I grew up with. And when I first came here to the United States, that felt like home. I was attracted, old ships. I had a studio at USS Hornet, which is a retired aircraft career in Alameda. And then the third part of my career is a new technology, robotics, Boston Dynamics, space technology, SpaceX, stuff like that. So various three different uh, spaces. And I would say in terms of color, the two first chapters are very similar. Trained as a classical portrait painter, I look at Rembrandt as my hero. This is how you paint a figure. And then I use the same color palette to paint old, retired derelict technology. So I look at this technology as if they were people. As a portrait painter, what you do, you try to capture the essence of your sitter. So it's not about the outside. I mean, the outside is interesting, the wrinkles, the personality, but ultimately what's inside. So I was very successful and I had lots of fun painting old portraits of technology. Again, think of them almost like when you look at Rembrandt's body of work, most of his work are old people. Now, when I transfer, starting painting new technology, I try to use the same color palette and the same attitude. Here's what happens. So I'm taking new technology, which I would say is like a teenager or like a young child, and I dress them up to somber colors and very serious. And they came out really, started coming out sort of hostile, almost like children you dress in goth outfits. And I had the moment that I had to rethink my color palette And I thought, okay, so these are teenagers. They are young personalities that I don't even know what's there. So it's so hard to capture the essence of these new technologies. So what do I do? Well, young kids, they dress ridiculous colors. They steal their mother's shoes. They put a hat with funny feathers, two different socks. And that kind of attitude I took when I went to Boston Dynamics. My whole color palette, 2019 on, very, very changed, very bright, very funny, very silly, because I couldn't have these young children as such mystical objects because it was just very, really hostile and unpleasant. So one of your paintings that struck me, I love the robot dogs, but fuselage, radars, objects that people might just pass by, like people, as you say, in portraits. Are you documenting society as well as technology and the connection? So especially again with the older technology, for me, it was important to tell the story of these unsung heroes. For the society, for art to work, everyone is important. Someone said that it's nice to think of society as a one big machine because then you know you belong because a machine, every part is important. Nobody is unimportant, not needed. So then you feel like you belong. So there is these machines that us 
especially in technology or in culture, people think about going to museums and being fancy dressed up. But at the end of the day, somebody has to bring the, the electricity, somebody has to take the sewage out, somebody has to bring communications. My mission was, I love America so much, and it's important to pay praise to these old machines in a sense as a metaphor to the whole society as a whole working in unison. Everyone is a hero in their own place. So you go from the preservation to the future and where we are now working with mechanical robots. I mean, what was your first introduction to robotics and some of the more current things that you painted? So Boston Dynamics yeah, it was the first robot I worked with. I knew about them. Someone told me and I've been eyeballing them and watching them. And I wanted to come in and just paint a portrait of Spot. Each portrait, again, for me is a, I'm going to actually say that I think about my body of work as a museum of the future. And each portrait represents royalty of the time or a celebrity of the time. And the biggest celebrity in robotics right now is Boston Spot Dynamics, of course. So I wanted to paint a portrait for the future of the robot. And perhaps conceptually as an artist, I think of it that the future AI intelligent machines, they can look at these portraits and think about Spot, oh, these are my cultural ancestors. So that was the first idea, how to come there. And then I started pitching my little heart out, how do I get into the Boston Dynamics? So I've asked many, many people, and finally I found a connection, and I was introduced and came there. And when I first saw Spot, of course, amazing, that was still when very few people knew about them. And instantly I also knew that had to be more than just a pure portrait. It had to be innovative, had to incorporate some technology. And then my body of work changed, not only in terms of the palette, but I also started implementing augmented reality. So the painting is just the beginning. And then through the device, you look at augmented reality to connect to some conceptual idea. Hey there, it's Donna. I want to invite you to go check out some of our past conversations with game changers and innovators who are shaping our future. Like Steve Sasson, who engineered the first digital camera at Kodak 50 years ago, using spare parts he had to swipe from the factory floor after the film company shut down his project. Nobody told me to build a camera or anything like that. I just built this system and I just threw it out there. And then I got all this pushback, which I was woefully unprepared for. In that regard, when I think about it, I think I'm kind of the luckiest person in the world because I was able to witness this whole development. I was in the room face to face with people telling me it was impossible. And now as I sit here with you today, it's everywhere. And I've lived through that whole transition and I've seen how impossible ideas turn into probable ideas, turn into possible ideas, turn into real ideas, turn into everyday items. I learned something, actually a lot of somethings every time I talk to a new guest. They're pioneers, they're thought leaders in their fields. They all have inspiring stories to tell and I share them with you every week. So if you're enjoying these episodes, please hit subscribe and join me for more stories about the moments before it happened. I think robots in general and robotics and artificial intelligence is fascinating because there are a lot of jobs in, with window washing robots and crime fighting robots that are actually really purposeful robots that are helping us be better humans and functioning. 
When you first saw the robot, were you just like, wow, this is really cool? Or were you a little creeped out? Mm -hmm. I mean, to be honest, because it's very daunting. I think your painting actually makes the robot more friendly and more approachable than some might. Do you think you're introducing people into the technology world because of your art that they might not look otherwise? I do. My intention is to show something new to the public in a non threatening way. That's why I use oil paintings. Oil painting is a very old traditional medium. I think by using old portraiture, classical portraiture, to present something that's so modern, it's a little more palatable, a little easier to relate to. I think there is a lot of very technology-driven art that's wonderful, but if it's very new idea presented in a very new language, it's really not very easy to access for the general public. So I think about my work, kind of like what happened with Hamilton. Hamilton was so successful because here we have Miranda using this beautiful modern language of hip hop, but then he's using the old language and that made it so relevant. So the jazz of all the new that all my work is about. And in terms of spot, just one more thing. My first reaction is that this is another encounter with another mind. It maybe wasn't the value judgment, am I scared or not? But there is something there that has its own mind. And I think that's what makes people a little uncomfortable about robotics because when you think about the machine, machine is supposed to be predictable and programmable and repetitive and perfect. And robots, because A, they still make mistakes, so you don't know what to expect, and they act in a kind of unexpected ways, this is that moment that us as human beings, we're like, wow, there is something there. It's more than just gears turning. There is something there more. Yeah, fascinating. So Leonardo da Vinci, who I admire because of the art as well as the innovation that volumes, right? And one of the things that was painted in the Ephesi, and I don't know if it's still there, but it was when I mentored there years and years ago, was learning never exhausts the mind. And I think the intersection of what you're doing is really the intersection of technology and art. And there's no limit to what you can paint. Is there something that you haven't painted that you really want to paint? So going back to pitching my little heart out as an artist, people look from the outside and they think these companies just begging me to come in. No, I'm the one who is begging. The last year I've been begging to come into SpaceX and I'm very happy to announce that I am at SpaceX. They gave me beautiful studio space. It's a wonderful, super fun team. And so SpaceX has been on my radar for a very long time. So I'm there now. I'm very excited. That was truly my dream. Because when I think about these machines and technologies, going back to the concept of portraiture, I think of space technology as the superhero. The work that I'm doing is going to have a little bit of religious overtones. I think technology gives us hope, but it also brings fear. Technology is now it's about immortality. Religion also is about our relationship with immortality. And I think about engineers as high priests and technology is the gods. So SpaceX right now, I'm doing a lot of gold leaf, changing the color palette. So that's the most exciting thing that's happening right now. So are you going to go to space? Some of your artworks going to eventually go to Mars, space? <laughs> well, that's not the deal they gave me. I would go in heartbeat, but no, that's not the deal they gave me. So you mentioned art augmented reality. If we were to go through your, a gallery of your work, can you take us on a virtual walk of what that experience would be? Are we wearing augmented headgear? 
to visually look at some of your art or is that the world that you're taking us into? Sure. It's all just looking at the work with a cell phone. I think that's interesting thing what happened about the pandemic is the QR code is having this whole revival. It's different, but think of it, the, the whole painting as a QR code, which triggers augmented reality, and then you see another layer to it. And conceptual, what it means to me is that the machines have to move. They have to have a life. When I paint them, they are still images, but I'm trying to you know, give them life by allowing them to show their secret life or whatever they are doing through your phone. When the headgear, there's a lot of companies I was approached, actually, maybe the eyeglass will come back. But right now, it's just looking through the phone. But it's two bodies of work, like the painting on its own has to stand and has its own value. The painting, the first painting at Boston Dynamics with Spot, I was inspired to reference Marcel Duchamp, Nude Descending the Staircase, probably the most important painting in the 20th century and the most innovative. And for me to be innovative, augmented reality was the way to free the machine, let it move around. I'd also reference Marcel Duchamp, so kind of find a place in history for that painting. And also your user experience becomes much more dynamic, right? What are your thoughts about as we go into Web3 and this metaverse? Are there going to be new opportunities for you to showcase technology or use technology with your art? So I'm trying not to talk like an old person, but I'm not sure about this whole metaverse thing. I think the reason why I like robotics and every technology and approach, it's really in the life robotics. The same true now for SpaceX. I'm also doing a residency at Agility Robotics, which is Carnegie Mellon academics startup that's doing phenomenally well. I respect the robots and technology because it has to respect nature. So there is no fuzzy stuff going on. There is no deep fakes. There is no make-believe. They really have to respect nature to operate in nature. That's why I like robotics. What scares me a bit about metaverse is that it might create a really another great divide between the haves and the have-nots. Christopher Hitchens used to say always, we don't have bodies, we are bodies, we are physical beings. And I think to have fully human experience, we have to experience with all our senses in real world. And I can see how in the future, when you have very limited resources, you put your goggles on and you just go into the make-believe, but it's not the real world. I think the real world is going to the lake with your family and with your friends and having a glass of wine together. So I am cautious about the metaverse and optimism around it. We talk about STEM and STEAM a lot on the show, but it's rare to find someone who embodies the A or arts and STEAM so well but also proving adept at the science and technology parts. We asked Agnieszka about how the next generation can develop both technical and creative worldviews in this discussion. How do you bring in the classroom kids and embellish the technology and the creative process? I think robotics actually is a very good entry for children because, again, between like Spot at Boston Dynamics or Agility Robotics, these machines are so striking and so weird and so wonderful. I think they're extremely inspiring for kids. Kids have lots of curiosity 
And I think if you gave a kid a cell phone with some wonderful game and Spot came by, the kid would drop the phone and would follow Spot. So maybe more robotics, Spot and Agility, the same and other robots. They're very often sold to universities, actually, as just platforms to experiment and to learn how to program. So I think that's where STEM really comes in as an inspiring programming and also space. Again, you know, when there is a launch, it's hard to not notice there is something going on. And even with Starlink, when you are in LA and if you're able to actually see Starlink launch and you see in the sky wonderful color and light artifacts, it's hard to stay neutral to that. Yeah. Did you see last week's images of the galaxy and James Webb telescope? Exactly, right? When was the last time you see on Instagram, on social media, people posting so much amazing stuff? Yeah, I was amazed. I mean, at first I saw it, I go, wow, it's like all this gemstones and jewelry in the sky. And I went out and I looked and I don't see that with the naked eye. <laughs> but I felt like a kid when I saw that, that wonderment and excitement, which when I saw your paintings, I felt the same way. This is extraordinary. You took something that might be ordinary, maybe not as ordinary to some, but for me, I've been in the tech industry and sector for a long time. So something that's kind of, you know, I'm familiar and I'm comfortable with, but you turned it into an object of beauty and that intersection of art and technology really brings it to, I think, a very approachable level. So if you come from more of the art side, you experience technology and vice versa. And I know with my own kids, when I would go to art museum, I'd have to kind of make a deal. My son was really into art and design and people and social components. And my daughter was the opposite. She was really into technology and the science. So what I have to say, two hours at the art museum, two hours at the science museum, and I'm fine with both. And lunch was in the middle, right? But I know by just their reaction when I shared some of your artwork, and it was kind of astounding. My daughter, particularly, who is a sociology major, says, you know, we need more art like this because people need to be more comfortable with technology. And we're so used, and this is my things that I try to school, we're so used to looking waist high, right? We're used to looking at our mobile device and not connecting with the universe, not connecting with space and the things and, you know, the surroundings and the nature that you describe. And so I think that's part of your breakthrough. What do you think about the creator's economy with NFTs now being used as a means for artists like yourself to create and protect and ensure the integrity of your art? Sure. So I released only one NFT and it was now maybe three years ago. I wanted to understand the technology, how it works, understand the minting. I'm glad I did it. It's complicated NFTs with the creators because I think it was very exciting in the beginning. There was lots of innovation and pushed the art forward. And I think the intention of retaining a little bit from the resale, I think that's a fabulous idea. That said, at the end, it ended up, and we don't know what's happening. I mean, there's a huge bust right now. But in the end, I think it really became a very vulgar market where every conversation started always with how much can I get for it and how much is it worth? As a working artist, it's very important for me to make money. This is not a charity operation. I have to sell my work to eat and pay my bills. So money is very important. That said, if money was my top value, I would not be an artist. So I think to switch it that way and start valuing art for what you can sell it for, that's disturbing to me. And also, when you talk about art, ideally, 
when I sell something, it's about collecting. So my collectors hang on to the art forever, perhaps. With NFTs, it's always about the trading. It's a different, I'm not a hater of NFTs, but I'm kind of glad there is a reckoning right now. And I hope they're going to come back in a more thoughtful way conceptually as art. Yeah, I think what's interesting about the NFT is people that might not follow art or be engaged and look at art have gotten involved because they collect NFTs, right? So it's a little bit of, I would describe it like a badge, right? I have an NFT in music. I have an NFT in art. I have an NFT in fashion, these different areas. Sure. And so it's kind of like collectibles. But I, I think as an artist, such as yourself, you've created a very unique lane in which you're painting and documenting and expressing and capturing society the same way a documentary photographer might. Are there other mediums or do you use technology as an aspect of painting anything? Oh, yes, absolutely. So Spot, my student and my apprentice, Spot does its own body of work. It's very abstract. My work is pretty figurative. Spot does only very abstract work. And for me, it's a way of having a conversation about what is abstract art today. Is it just a decorative wallpaper? Very often it is. Historically, abstract art kind of exhausted itself in the 80s. It's been great, but then it became very kind of repetitive and simple. So Spot, because Spot is a child, it looks like almost like finger painting. And then I don't even touch the canvas. That's very technology driven. I think very interestingly, what's happening is the DALI. I think that's a huge game changer. I think it's the biggest since photography came into the arts because I've seen some results from DALI and the images that are coming out, they're really good. They're very, very good. So I think, of course, illustration field is going to be extremely disrupted as much as it is already. But also in painting, humans, us, human artists, we're going to have to really step up in our game to be relevant because Dali produces phenomenal work. Yeah, fascinating. So you're working with SpaceX. And if you were to create a time capsule of the future for somebody, say 100 years from now, wanted to look at this particular society on Earth. And this would be the Zoomers' great, <laughs> great, great grandchildren, probably. What body of work would you include in that capsule that you would want people to understand and learn about the 21st century? Oh, that's a wonderful question. I love the question. I think of Machines and technology are humanity's children. I really do. I think our higher aspirations, our biggest dreams go into technology. The smartest minds in the world work on technology. And I'm not just talking about executives, all the engineers. They're just brilliant. I'm around them. I'm like the stupidest person around them always. So I think every machine, especially the ones that are super innovative and very ambitious, like going to Mars, this just represents how humans how optimistic we are and how much technology is the conduit of our optimism or our culture. So the body of work from SpaceX, like I said, is going to have religious overtones. I'm painting a series of hatches, actually, hatches that open up when the astronauts go out to space. And I think of them as the infinite, the door to the infinite. But I think I live in the Bay Area. People do a lot of experimenting with drugs. There is a lot of acid, of course, or psychedelics in general as a way to access the other realities, perhaps. I think it's that hatch that opens the infinite, that technology is the way for us to access the infinite. 
So in the body of work for the future generations, I think would be always space technology because starting from Icarus, then through the Wright brothers, now Elon Musk, it's all about going to space, flying as our biggest ambition. The next time you see a robot, radar, or fuselage, you might look at them as art and not purely tech. We can totally see Agnieszka pitching a residency in outer space. If that doesn't happen, her Earthbound adventures do not disappoint. Check the episode notes for links to her website and more resources about her work. Thank you for listening. Follow Before It Happened on Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood. And all episodes are written and developed by Susanna Camp with additional editing and music provided by Noda Labs.